Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. Alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? One of the great things about the alt-rock revolution of the 1990s was its diversity. The sounds from this part of the rock universe had always been varied. That's because the idea of alternative music was so amorphous. If it was A, non-mainstream and ignored by most radio stations, B, a little left of center in terms of aesthetics, and C, considered weird by the majority, well, then it qualified as alternative by default, simply because there was no other way to categorize it. Humans love to organize things into piles, so... This was an all-purpose pile. Multiple genres thrived in the alt-rock universe. Plus, there were all the sub-genres and sub-sub-genres and even sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-genres. This means that if you were into alternative music before the 1990s, you were spoiled for choice. There was something for everyone. Then along came grunge, the biggest sound of the decade. It ripped a hole in the music-space-time continuum. This tear into a parallel universe, allowing all these sounds to invade the mainstream. And because these sounds and scenes and subgenres have been happily evolving almost unseen for years, the people making this music knew what they were doing. The mainstream was flooded with new songs from scenes that were already mature, or at least very close to it. Never before had so much solid music from so many seasoned performers been waiting in the wings ready to show their stuff. And when they got their chance, wow. This is our look at the alt-rock of the 1990s, part seven. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and let me begin by emphasizing something unique about the early 1990s. For a few years, it seemed that a week did not go by without hearing some exciting new songs from some brilliant new artists. It really was an embarrassment of riches. See, when grunge came along, a dam broke. All this alt-rock, which had existed in a parallel and separate universe, came flooding into the mainstream, eventually displacing, or washing away if you want to carry on the metaphor, almost all the rock the world had known up until that time. It was like the destruction of Atlantis. And as we've seen, it wasn't just grunge. Demographics played a huge part as Generation X, the sons and daughters of the baby boom, came of age and started demanding music that meant something to them. And then there were the economic factors, the swings in music cycles and changes to the music industry itself. This flood was so strong that it wasn't long before the term alternative music lost any meaning. Alternative became mainstream meaning that it wasn't an alternative to anything, really, except the pushed-out artists that would now form the basis of a new radio format called Classic Rock. But back to these new sounds. 
We've already covered several. Grunge and Britpop, of course. The influence of hip-hop and the changes that brought. All the different and varied sounds from female performers. The mid-90s punk rock revival. But there was so much more to Alternative. This episode, which I said, Chapter 7 of our look back at the 90s, We'll look back at some of the other types of alt-rock that found purchase with Generation X and other fans looking for something new and interesting. We won't be able to cover all of them, but we will touch on the sounds that made life really, really interesting, at least for a while. Let's start with shoegaze. This was a loud, fuzzy, buzzy form of guitar rock that came out of the Thames River Valley outside of London in the very late 80s and early 90s. Lots of distortion, lots of feedback, with vocals buried in the mix. But also with a very disarming amount of melody. It was very immersive. It was semi-psychedelic and often very dreamy. It was called shoegaze because of the habit of many performers to avoid contact with the audience. They would just stare down at the floor instead. There were bands like Slow Dive, Chapter House, Curve, Lush, My Bloody Valentine, Adorable, The Catherine Wheel. And this is a 1992 song from a band from Oxford called Ride pretty much ticks all the boxes when it comes to shoegaze. Ride with Leave Them All Behind from 1992, and that's what you call shoegaze. And had grunge not come along and pushed shoegaze out of the way, remember that grunge threatened to swamp much of the domestic rock scene in the UK in the early 90s, shoegaze might have survived. Instead, it retreated into the background without ever really going away. Its influences can be still felt today in later bands like Silver Sun Pickups. Let's now talk about goth. This is one of the biggest alt-rock subgenres and might be the second biggest rock genre in the world after metal. Goth emerged in the very late 1970s, during a time when punk had emboldened people to try all kinds of different things, we call this the post-punk era, and some of the very first bands from this era were into dark sounds and sensibilities. Many of them were inspired by images and attitudes from gothic novels and fashions of the 1800s and earlier. Elements of the occult and the bizarre were sometimes incorporated. And the culture extended to clubs and magazines and a general lifestyle. Lyrics were often very introspective and, here's that word again, dark. The music featured sharp, slashing guitars, bass lines that were often played higher up on the fretboard, and drums that were heavy. Everything worked together to create a hypnotic effect. The major goth bands of the 90s were Bauhaus and Susie and the Banshees, Sisters of Mercy. And if we go back to the very beginning, we'll find that Joy Division was a major influence. Another big goth band was The Cure. However, by the time the 90s began, they'd released eight albums, some pretty bleak and sad. They had a huge fan base which meant that when the 90s came along, there was a massive back catalog for the masses to explore. Plus, the band continued to release insanely popular albums, some of which actually contained some pretty happy songs. The Cure, formerly a pure goth band with their top 40 hit from 1992, Friday I'm in Love, making them part of that exclusive group of alt-rock bands with commercial success. Happy songs like that led people into The Cure's world, which is where they found the sad, depressing stuff. That led to more wandering through the goth world, and that brought goth to the fore during the alternative 90s. 
The Cure continues to tour today, and if you're looking for bands influenced by them, we can turn to groups like Interpol, Smashing Pumpkins, The Killers, Nine Inch Nails, My Chemical Romance, and so many more. When we come back, more sounds from the 90s with a representation from lo-fi, nerd rock, and something we'll just call post-grunge. Now, more of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. This is Chapter 7 of our look back at the alt-rock of the 1990s, and this time we're looking at the vast array of genres that we heard beyond grunge and Britpop. Next up is lo-fi. While this was not a genre unique to the 90s, it was when this sound got its place in the sun. Lo-fi is obviously the opposite of hi-fi. Lo-fi style recordings go back decades, but it wasn't until 1986 when a DJ from a community FM station in New Jersey coined the term when he hosted a show dedicated to home recordings. Lo-fi practitioners prefer to make recordings in grittier, less high-tech surroundings, producing a, well, a grittier, low-tech sound. Maybe that means a studio with less than state-of-the-art gear and facilities, or maybe we're talking about recordings made in a garage or a bedroom. It can be the sonic opposite of polished or slick, and to many people that equates to authentic and real. By the late 80s, the lo-fi label was being affixed to many indie rock bands who occasionally veered into, let's call it ramshackle territory. Some of R.E.M.'s early work was referred to as lo-fi, even though it was recorded in decent studios. We had Dinosaur Jr., Sebado, even Beck, especially his indie label work, were all considered to be lo-fi. A great example of the kind of lo-fi that vaulted forward in the 90s came from Pavement, a four-piece from Stockton, California, that specialized in straightforward, sometimes woozy forms of distorted indie guitar rock. Their debut album from 1992, Slanted and Enchanted, holds a special place in lo-fi alt-rock, and then came Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain in 1994, which even contained something of a hit single on alternative radio. Advertiser looks and chops a must No big hair Songs mean a lot when songs are bought Pavement from 1994 with Cut Your Hair. These days, the lo-fi approach is more popular than ever with artists recording albums wherever they want, using a laptop and garage band or something similar. Pavement's influence would later be heard in the music of late 90s Blur, and also groups like Modest Mouse, Spoon, and The Walkman. Lo-fi's cousin, I think we can say that, is geek rock. You can also call it nerd rock or even dork rock. And before you yell at me, uh, none of those terms are meant as insults, by the way. With the rise of the personal computer and its associated culture came the rise of geeks and nerds. Geek rockers were outsiders even in the outlier universe of alt-rock. When the goth kids and lo-fiers and shoegazes branded you as weird, that was a badge of honor. Geeks liked weird instruments and strange electronic effects to go with their standard guitar, bass, and drums. They were kids who were good in school, who just happened to form a pretty good band and made fun songs about what they knew. Most important was the subject matter of their lyrics. In addition to celebrating their social and emotional awkwardness, they liked to sing about comic book characters, video games, science fiction, technology. And most of them did it with a real sense of humor, much of it self-deprecating and often really, really clever. Like lo-fi, you know geek rock when you hear it. They might be giants who like to sing about astronomy and physics while busting out an accordion. The very name Nerf Herder screams nerd because that's a Star Wars reference. In fact, they may be the first band to actually describe what they do as geek rock or nerd rock. We had Weedus and Granddaddy and OK Go. All of them could be categorized under geek rock or nerd rock. 
as could Weezer. Weezer from their debut album, which is the blue one, and My Name is Jonas. They've continued to celebrate their geekiness with no reservations whatsoever in both their songs and their music videos. Today's flyers of the flag include Public Service Broadcasting, The Decemberists, Titus Andronicus, and Alt-J. Next up is what we'll call post-grunge. This term was invented to describe bands that came after grunge, but really weren't into that sound at all. But by listening to them, you could tell that grunge must have happened. At first, calling someone post-grunge was the worst insult you could throw at an artist. What it said was you thought they were derivative or unoriginal or bad clones of the real music that came earlier in the decade. You know, groups that figured out a formula based on what the alt-rock kids were listening to and then exploited that for commercial gain. The term was reserved for bands like Creed and Nickelback. Later on, though, that was toned down. Post-grunge came to mean a hybrid sound that merged all the elements of alternative, or at least the grunge part of the recipe, with more mainstream aesthetics. The production, a little slicker. The pop sensibilities in the songwriting and arrangements, a little more pronounced. The guitars aren't tuned nearly as low. And there was a slightly different lyrical approach. Whereas a lot of grunge lyrics were framed in metaphors, post-grunge lyricists used the first-person approach a lot more. Here's what I mean. Compare how many songs by Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden use the word I in the lyrics. Now think about the lyrical writing style of Collective Soul, or Bush, or Third Eye Blind, and Matchbox 20. You see what I mean? The greatest of the post-grunge bands is the Foo Fighters. But let's not forget about bands like Puddle of Mud, and Silverchair, and Live. Live from their 1994 album Throwing Copper and All Over You. Again, not grunge, but you can tell that something like grunge must have happened for this band to strike it rich with the alternative crowd. There are a few more genres that exploded in the alt-rock 90s, and all of them are connected by one thing, electronics. We'll pick it up there next. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The 90s gave us a lot of hard and heavy music. While alt-rock has always had its extreme side in terms of intensity, texture, and tempo, more of it burbled to the surface in the 90s than any time during its history. This had a lot to do with Generation X's view of the world. Again, music is a cultural feedback loop. It tends to reflect the attitudes, hopes, wishes, fears, and anger of society at large. And because alt-rock is generally driven by the people between the ages of 15 and 25, the age of Gen X in the 90s, we can extrapolate how they were feeling. And for much of the decade, they were supremely pissed off. Take industrial music, for example. This was another post-punk invention with roots in the late 1970s. It's based largely on electronics, but it can also incorporate big guitars and live drums in its construction. For the longest time, industrial lived on the fringes of the alt-rock universe. It was just too heavy, too angry, too aggressive, too harsh, too distorted, too abrasive, and just generally too intense for prime time. It thrived in dark clubs where the music was loud and the dancing was sometimes violent. Its practitioners and fans were collectively shouting, wake up, sheeple, question authority, think for yourselves, and be honest about the pain you feel. 
Industrial lived on labels like wax tracks and mute and strange European imprints. Groups had names like Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, Knights of Ebb, and Front 242. But then a strange thing happened at the beginning of the 90s. Maybe it was the anxiety brought on by the first Gulf War. Maybe it was the intense recession. Maybe it was the never-ending Republican rule in the U.S. Well, whatever the case, a number of industrial-minded groups broke through from the parallel universe. And some arrived even before grunge did. Out of Chicago came Ministry, which began having gold and platinum-selling albums in 1989. Ministry was even nominated for a Grammy Award in 1992. But they lost out to an even bigger industrial group. Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. The Grammy went to a track called Wish. Nine Inch Nails and Wish. That was in regular rotation on alt-rock stations for a chunk of the 1990s. Just compare that to what's been popular in other decades. Industrial is still a thing, it's out there, but it's again retreated to the margins, awaiting a time when we once again need really, really angry music. Not too far away from industrial was a new thing we started calling alternative dance. Again, this was based in electronics, lots of keyboards and drum machines and loops and samples. Basically, alternative dance is souped up 80s techno pop, dressed with indie rock and indie attitudes, and fused together with DJ moves and something that became known as turntablism that ability to manipulate sounds and create cool effects, club DJ style. Most of the better-known alternative dance we got came from the UK. It's a direct descendant of the British rave and dance and DJ scene of the 1980s. Bands like New Order led the way. As the 90s progressed, the number of artists that fell under the umbrella of alternative dance exploded. A million flavors appeared. Post-disco, electroclash, new rave, big beat... It was a vast continuum, linking alternative music proper with pure dance music. Some of the bigger acts were signed to big record deals and had their music promoted worldwide. Propellerheads, Chemical Brothers, Low Fidelity All-Stars, Daft Punk. And one of the biggest was Fatboy Slim. Norman Cook used to be the bass player for the House Martins, a nice, tight English indie pop band from the 1980s. But then he got deep into producing dance music. By 1996, he was calling himself Fatboy Slim, and presiding over huge gigs featuring thousands of dancers. And by the end of the decade, he was having number one albums and number one singles and was on the radio all the time. Fatboy Slim and Right Here, Right Now from his 1998 album, You've Come a Long Way, Baby. There's one more genre that I want to highlight, and I hesitate ever so slightly because it's a term that's so broad that it's almost meaningless. But it was used a lot in the late 90s to describe a wave of bands that seemed to eschew guitars completely. DJ culture was exploding. Guitar sales had dropped. Sales of turntables went up. In fact, there was a year or two when turntable sales threatened to exceed that of guitars because everybody wanted to be a DJ. Vinyl, which was an otherwise dead format, was kept alive really only by DJs who wanted something other than CDs to spin and scratch and beat mix. Yes, you could dance to electronica. That was encouraged. But it was also made for lean-back listening to chill out or something to enjoy on headphones. Underworld and The Crystal Method and Faithless were definitely electronica. 
Some people called what Fatboy Slim did electronica. Moby was an example of non-danceable headphone electronica. Not most of his stuff. But then we could also rope in Madonna and her Ray of Light album, parts of U2's pop album, and just about anything Bjork did in the 1990s. You see what I mean about being a broad term? But let's go back to 1997. Alt-Rock was definitely struggling to keep the public's attention. With the economy improving and Gen X aging into adulthood and the workforce with its adult-sized problems and challenges, Gen X no longer had the time or inclination to be into music as much as they were in the early part of the decade. Gen X was being supplanted by Gen Y, and they were into the pop phase of their lives. It was all Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys and Puff Daddy and En Vogue. Meanwhile, alt-rock had splintered into a million different subgenres, resulting in things like far too many one-hit wonders. At the same time, the record industry was phasing out singles. You want that one song from a band? Sorry, cough up 20 bucks and get the full CD. If you were into music back then, you were hoping and praying that someone or something would come along and rescue alt-rock from its late 90s doldrums. And for a few weeks in the spring of 1997, there were predictions that alt-rock would be saved by this amorphous thing called electronica, especially after The Prodigy had a number one album all over the world with Fat of the Land. Was this the shape of the alt-rock to come? On the face you hated, The Prodigy from 1997 and Firestarter from Fat of the Land. Electronica, of course, ended up not being the future of alt-rock. Instead, it branched off and bloomed on its own. What we used to call electronica is what we call EDM today. And we don't need to talk about how big that has become, do we? Electronica, alternative dance, industrial, post-grunge, nerd rock, lo-fi, goth, shoegaze. These are just some of the forms of alt-rock that enjoyed moments in the sun during the 90s. We could have just as well mentioned early emo, dream pop, math rock, post-hardcore, alt-metal, alt-country, twee rock, contemporary Christian alternative music, and so many more. And of course, we've already covered grunge, Britpop, hip-hop influence material, and everything that women contributed through the decade. Like I said, there was this unique time in the 1990s when it seemed that every week brought about a new sound from an exciting new artist. And now you see why. On the next installment of our look back on the alt-rock 90s, we're going to focus our attention on Canada. This was the decade when Canadian rock music really came of age, and much of it with the rise of what's now termed the Can-Rock Revolution. And when we look back, you'll see that it really was a revolution. Podcasts of this program are available for free download through iTunes. I encourage you to subscribe and binge away. There are dozens and dozens and dozens to choose from. We can also meet up through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. Give me a follow if you're so inclined. And then there's my website, a journal of musicalthings.com, which is updated every day. You can also get the free newsletter, which will appear in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern. And all email can go to alan at alancross.ca. I await your comments and rebuttals. Part 8 of the 90s, next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.